0: This episode of the Ortho Bullets podcast will go over the topic of patellar instability from the sports section on orthobullets.com. Patellar instability can be classified into three categories, acute traumatic, chronic patholaxity, and habitual. Acute traumatic patellar instability occurs equally by gender and may occur from a direct blow like a helmet-to-knee collision in football. Down. Milton sprinting out, Ooh, he's cut down at the 25... Chronic patholaxity is characterized by recurrent subluxation episodes. It occurs more in women, and it tends to be associated with malalignment. Habitual patellar instability is usually painless, and occurs during each flexion movement, and the pathology is usually proximal. For example, it is usually associated with tight lateral structures like the IT band and the vastus lateralis. Patellar instability most commonly occurs in the second to third decades of life. Predisposing factors to lateral patellar dislocation include general factors like generalized ligamentous laxity as in Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, a previous patellar instability event, miserable malalignment syndrome, which is a term named for the three anatomic characteristics that lead to an increased Q angle, which is femoral antiversion, valgum, and external tibial torsion slash pronated feet females, not males, have a higher incidence of patellofemoral instability due to their increased Q angle. The Q angle or quadriceps angle is the angle formed by the intersection of a line from the ASIS to the patella and from the patella to the tibial tubercle. A normal Q angle in males is 14 degrees and in females is 18 degrees. A higher angle means that there is a larger lateral vector force on the patella which predisposes to lateral patellar instability. While an increased Q-angle increases the chances for dislocation, a previous history of dislocation is the strongest predictor. Fithian et al. prospectively followed 189 patients for 2-5 to five years and found that the risk was highest among females 10-17 to 17 years old and those with previous instability episodes. Patients with a prior history had 7 times higher odds of subsequent instability episodes during follow-up than first-time dislocators. Anatomical risk factors for patellar instability can be divided into osseous and muscular. Osseous risk factors include trochlear dysplasia, excessive lateral patellar tilt, which is measured in extension, lateral femoral condyle hypoplasia, and patella alta, which causes the patella to not articulate with the sulcus, therefore losing its constraint effects. Muscular risk factors include a dysplastic VMO muscle, an overpull of lateral structures like the iliotibial band and vastus lateralis. The common theme throughout this list of predisposing features is an inequality in forces acting medially and laterally on the patella, with resulted higher rates of lateral patellar dislocation. Dejour et al. examined CT scans on 134 patients treated for patellar instability, they identified four common factors for unstable symptomatic knees. One, trochlear dysplasia in 85% of patients. Two, quadriceps dysplasia in 83% of patients. Three, patella alta in 24% of patients. And four, the tibial tuberosity trochlear groove, which is pathological when greater than or equal to 20 millimeters in 56% of patients studied. The mechanism of patellar instability is usually a non-contact twisting injury with the knee extended and foot externally rotated. The patient will usually reflexively contract the quadriceps, thereby reducing the patella. And osteochondral fractures occur most often as the patella relocates. A direct blow as the cause of patellar instability is less common. For example, a knee-to-knee collision in basketball. You got caught right in the corner. Oh. Oh, knee turned back on him. Yeah, a replay. You don't have to say much when you see that. Or a football helmet to the side of the knee. Harrison chasing. Moore, oh my goodness, Moore is absolutely wild. In talking about the relevant anatomy for patellar instability, it's important to discuss both passive stability and dynamic stability. With respect to passive stability, the medial patellofemoral ligament, or MPFL, is the major player. During lateral patellar dislocation, the femoral attachment of the MPFL is a common site of injury and avulsion. Traumatic injury or laxity to the MPFL can cause further patellar instability as the MPFL is the primary restraint to lateral patellar translation in the first 20 degrees of knee flexion. Patellofemoral bony structures account for stability in deeper knee flexion. Trochlear groove morphology, patella height, and patellar tracking are the major factors responsible for this passive stability in deeper knee flexion. With respect to dynamic stability, it is provided by the vastus medialis which attaches to the MPFL. Patients who have patellar instability generally complain of instability and anterior knee pain. Physical exam for an acute dislocation are usually associated with a large An absence of swelling supports a diagnosis of ligamentous laxity and more of a habitual dislocation mechanism. Other findings on exam may include medial-sided tenderness over the MPFL, increase in passive patellar translation, patellar apprehension, an increased Q angle, and the J sign. With respect to an increase in patellar translation, it is measured in quadrants of translation with the midline of the patella considered 0, and it should be compared to the contralateral side. Normal motion is less than two quadrants of patellar translation. Lateral translation of the medial border of the patella to the lateral edge of the trochlear groove is considered two quadrants and is considered an abnormal amount of translation. Patellar apprehension is defined as passive lateral translation resulting in guarding and a sense of apprehension. The J-sign is defined as excessive lateral translation and extension which pops the patella into the groove as the patella engages the trochlea early in flexion. The J-sign is associated with patella alta. As far as imaging for patellar instability, radiographs are important to rule out fracture or loose bodies. The medial patellar facet is the most common and less common is the lateral femoral condyle. AP views are the best to evaluate overall lower extremity alignment and version. Lateral views are best to assess for trochlear dysplasia. The crossing sign represents a flattened trochlear groove, which lies in the same plane as the anterior border of the lateral condyle. The double contour sign represents a convex trochlear groove-slash-hypoplastic medial condyle. The anterior border of the lateral condyle lies anterior to the anterior border of the medial condyle. A supratrochlear spur is something else you might find on lateral views and arises in the proximal aspect of the trochlea. The lateral views are also useful to evaluate for patellar height, like patella alta versus patella baja. Blumensatz line should extend to the inferior pole of the patella at 30 degrees of knee flexion. There are several methods to evaluate patellar height, such as the Insol-Salvati method, the Blackburn-Peel method, the caton de champs method, and the plateau patella angle. The most common method is the insul salvati index, which is the ratio of the patellar tendon length to the patellar height or the distance from the superior pole to the inferior pole of the patella. Normal values range from 0.8 to 1.2. A lower ratio is diagnostic of patella baja, while a higher ratio is diagnostic of patella alta. The Insol salvati index as well as some other measures of the patella's position within the trochlea are important when evaluating conditions such as patellar instability or patellofemoral pain syndrome. Insol and Salvati presented their original paper describing the anatomy of the knee with respect to patellar positioning. They note that previous methods of determining patellar positioning was either too complicated or too subjective. They found the length of the patellar tendon and the height of the patella to be approximately equal and saw no variations greater than 20%. Thus, they proposed the Insol-Salvati index with normal values ranging from 0.8 to 1.2. Shabshin et al. present the study making similar calculations as the Insol-Salvati index but done on sagittal MRI rather than lateral radiographs. They found a slightly higher degree of variation and defined normal as ranging from 0.79 to 1.52. They also noted females tended to have higher ratios on average compared to males. Moving on to other important points about imaging, sunrise-slash-merchant views are best to assess for lateral patellar tilt. The congruence angle is an index of subluxation but does not assess for tilt. It defines the relationship of the apex of the patella to a bisected femoral trochlea. A normal congruence angle is minus 6 degrees. The lateral patellofemoral angle is an angle between the line along the subchondral bone of the lateral trochlear facet plus posterior femoral condyles. A normal lateral patellofemoral angle is greater than 11 degrees. CT scans are useful in measuring the TTTG distance, which is the distance between two perpendicular lines from the posterior cortex to the tibial tubercle and the trochlear groove greater than 20 millimeters is usually considered abnormal. MRI is helpful to further rule out suspected loose bodies. The medial patellar facet is the most common and the lateral femoral condyle is less common as we mentioned. Osteochondral lesions and or bone bruising can also be seen. An MRI can also be used to see a tear of the MPFL which is usually at the medial femoral epicondyle. Adult treatment for patellar instability has non-operative and operative options. Non-operative management includes NSAIDs, activity modification, and physical therapy, which is the mainstay of treatment for first-time patellar dislocators without any loose bodies or intra-articular damage. It is also indicated for habitual dislocators. Usually, short-term immobilization for comfort is prescribed, followed by six weeks of controlled motion. Physical therapy will have an emphasis on strengthening and includes closed-chain short-arc quadriceps exercises, quad strengthening, core and hip strengthening to improve limb positioning and balance via the hip abductors, gluteals, and abdominals. A patellar stabilizing sleeve or J-brace may also be prescribed. Knee aspiration for tense effusions may also be considered, and aspirations that are positive for fat globules indicates fracture. Operative options include arthroscopic debridement for removal of loose bodies versus repair with or without stabilization. Other options include MPFL repair, MPFL reconstruction with autograft versus allograft, a Fulkerson-type osteotomy, tibial tubercle distalization, lateral release, and trochleoplasty. So as far as arthroscopic debridement versus repair with or without stabilization, that's indicated for displaced osteochondral fractures or loose bodies, which may be an indication for operative treatment in a first-time dislocator. And as far as techniques arthroscopic versus open removal of loose bodies versus repair of the osteochondral fragment are the two main techniques. Primary repair with screws or pins is done if there is sufficient bone available for fixation. MPFL repair is indicated for acute first-time dislocation with a bony fragment. Direct repair may be possible when surgery can be done within the first few days, however there are no clinical studies to support this over non-operative treatment. MPFL reconstruction with autograft versus allograft is indicated for recurrent instability in the setting of no significant underlying malalignment. The gracilis or semitendinosus tendons are commonly used as they are stronger than the native MPFL. The femoral origin can be reliably found radiographically at Schottel's point. Schottel et al. in a cadaveric study looked at radiographic landmarks for the femoral tunnel placement in MPFL reconstruction. A reproducible anatomical and radiographic point was found to be 1 millimeters anterior to the posterior cortex extension line, 2.5 millimeters distal to the posterior origin of the medial femoral condyle, and proximal to the level of the posterior point of the Blumensatt line on a lateral radiograph with both posterior condyles projected in the same plane, and this represented the mean femoral MPFL isometric center we will have a link in the show notes to a video of Dr. Mark Miller demonstrating an MPFL reconstruction using a free soft tissue graft. Another operative option is a Fulkerson type osteotomy, otherwise known as an anterior and medial tibial tubercle transfer, which may be indicated in addition to an MPFL repair reconstruction or in isolation for significant malalignment. It is also indicated for a TTTG distance of greater than 20 millimeters on CT. Techniques include anteromedialized displacement of the tibial tubercle osteotomy and fixation to correct the TTTG distance to 10 to 15 millimeters, and it's important to remember that it should never be less than 10 millimeters. We will have a link in the show notes to another video of Dr. Mark Miller performing a Fulkerson type osteotomy procedure. A tibial tubercle distalization is indicated for patella alta and is done via a distal displacement of the osteotomy and fixation. A lateral release is only indicated if there is excessive lateral tilt or tightness after medialization and this is done arthroscopically. Isolated releases are no longer indicated for instability. A trochleoplasty might be considered in severe cases of trochlear dysplasia or in revision cases, however it is rarely addressed in the United States even if trochlear dysplasia is present. Techniques include arthroscopic or open trochlear deepening procedures. As far as pediatric treatment, in general, the same principles are followed as in adults, but you must preserve the physis. For example, do not do a tibial tubercle osteotomy as this will harm the growth plate of the proximal tibia. Complications of patellar instability include recurrent dislocation and redislocation rates with non-operative treatment may be very high between 15 to 50% at 2 to 5 years and recurrence rate is higher in those patients who sustain a primary dislocation under the age of 20. Another complication is medial patellar dislocation and medial patellofemoral arthritis which is almost exclusively iatrogenic as a result of prior patellar stabilization surgeries. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question, a radiologist's report of the lateral knee radiograph comments that the height of the patella is four centimeters and the length of the patellar tendon is three centimeters. Which of the following may lead to this measurement? And the choices are one, osteochondritis desiccans, two, quadriceps tendon rupture, three, inferior pole patellar sleeve avulsion, four, MPFL disruption, and five, nail patella syndrome. So the question describes a knee with patella baja, which would likely be seen in the presence of a quadriceps tendon rupture. So the correct answer here is two, quadriceps tendon rupture. The measurements described in the question stem allow you to measure an insol Savati index, which to review is the ratio of the patellar tendon length to the patellar height. Normal values range from 0.8 to 1.2, and in this case, there is a lower ratio of 0.75, which is diagnostic of patella baja, and remember, a higher ratio is diagnostic of patella alta. So to quickly review the incorrect answers, answer 1 is incorrect, as osteochondritis desiccans does not lead to alteration of the Insolosovati index and thus would not cause patella baja. Answer 3 is incorrect, as an inferior pole patellar sleeve avulsion would lead to patella alta and an insol-savati ratio of greater than 1.2. Answer 4 is incorrect, as a disruption of the medial patellofemoral ligament would lead to patellar instability and abnormalities of other measures such as the patellar tilt. And answer 5 is incorrect, as nail patella syndrome is a genetic disorder often associated with small or absent patella, and the measurements given are not diagnostic of this condition. Next question, which of the following structures attaches between the medial epicondyle and adductor tubercle of the femur? And the choices are 1 medial head of the gastrocnemius, 2 medial collateral ligament, 3 semimembranosus, 4 adductor magnus, and 5 medial patellofemoral ligament. So this is a straight anatomy question. The femoral attachment of the MPFL is located between the femoral medial epicondyle and the adductor tubercle, so the correct answer is 5, the MPFL. To review, during lateral patellar dislocation, the femoral attachment of the MPFL is a common site of injury and avulsion. Traumatic injury or laxity to the MPFL can cause future patellar instability as the MPFL is the primary restraint to lateral patellar translation in the first 20 to 30 degrees of knee flexion. Surgery for reconstruction of the MPFL requires an understanding of the anatomic landmarks for drilling the femoral socket. Widjik et al. used radiopaque markers implanted into the femoral and tibial attachments of the superficial medial collateral ligament and the femoral attachments of the posterior oblique and medial patellofemoral ligaments of cadaveric knees. On the AP radiographs, the attachment site of the MPFL was an average of 42.3 mm from the femoral joint line. On the lateral radiograph, the MPFL was an average of 8.9 mm from the adductor tubercle and was located in the anteroproximal quadrant. So to quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, medial head of the gastrocnemius is incorrect as it originates off the posterior aspect of the medial femoral condyle. Answer 2, MCL is incorrect as it attaches approximately 3.2 mm proximal and 4.8 mm posterior from the medial femoral epicondyle. Answer 3, semimembranosus, is incorrect as it inserts onto the posterior surface of the medial tibial condyle. And answer 4, adductor magnus, is incorrect as it inserts onto the adductor tubercle. Next question, a 27-year-old football player sustains an acute lateral patellar dislocation. Which of the following is the most likely site of injury seen on MRI? And the choices are 1, mid-substance oblique retinacular ligament rupture, 2. Soft tissue avulsion of the medial patellofemoral ligament. 3. Mid-substance medial patellofemoral ligament rupture. 4. Partial quadriceps tendon rupture. And 5. Bony avulsion of the medial patellofemoral ligament. The most common site of medial patellofemoral ligament injury is a soft tissue avulsion injury of the ligament. Both mid-substance and soft tissue avulsions are more common than bony avulsions. So the correct answer is 2 soft tissue avulsion of the medial patellofemoral ligament. Bony avulsion off the patella can occur as well, and according to the reference study by Torisuka et al., the MPFL remains attached to the medial patellar fragment, and excellent clinical and radiographic results can occur with open reduction and fixation with suture anchors. The reported study by Nomura et al. reported that MRI is greater than 80% sensitive and greater than 80% specific regarding location for detecting MPFL injuries as well as their location. In addition, they noted a 96% MPFL injury rate with patellar dislocation. Next question. Which of the following best describes the radiographic landmarks on a lateral radiograph for locating the femoral attachment of the medial patellofemoral ligament during reconstruction? And the choices are 1. The intersection of a line extended from the middle of the shaft and Blumensatz line. 2. Anterior to a line extended from the middle of the shaft and Blumensatz line. 3. Posterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex of the shaft and distal to Blumensatz line. 4. Anterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex of the shaft and distal to Blumensatz line. And 5. Anterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex of the shaft and proximal to Blumensatz line. So correct positioning of a graph for MPFL reconstruction requires accurate placement of the femoral attachment site, which is anterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex and just proximal to the posterior extension of Blumensaat's line. Intraoperative fluoroscopy can be used to accurately identify this position. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Anterior to a line extended from the posterior cortex of the shaft and proximal to Blumensaat's line. Schottl et al. have described the radiographic landmark to be 1 mm anterior to the posterior cortex extension line, 2.5 mm distal to the posterior origin of the medial femoral condyle, and proximal to the level of the posterior point of the Blumensatz line. Redfern et al. evaluate this radiographic point and found it to be within 4 millimeters of the true attachment on anatomic dissection. Next question. An athlete sustains a traumatic patellar dislocation. The MRI shows a hemoarthrosis with a floating osteochondral fragment. Which of the following is the most likely site of origin for the loose fragment? And the choices are 1, the lateral patellar facet, 2, the medial patellar facet, 3, the odd patellar facet, 4, the medial trochlea, and 5, the central trochlea. So lateral patellar dislocations are by far the most common. The medial facet of the patella will impact on the lateral trochlear edge, so either of these would be acceptable answers, but lateral trochlea is not listed. Even without an osteochondral fracture, an MRI of an acute patellar dislocation will generally show bone bruises in these two locations. Namura et al. looked at 39 consecutive arthroscopies after lateral dislocation, and 95% had patellar chondral defects. They also reported that the medial facet of the patella is the most commonly injured site of the patella. So again, the correct answer to this question will be two, the medial patellar facet. Next question. All of the following are predisposing factors for lateral patellar dislocation in a native knee except, and the choices are one, excess femoral internal rotation, two, excess external tibial rotation, three, lateral femoral condylar hypoplasia, four, increased Q angle, and 5. Insufficiency of the vastus lateralis. So predisposing factors to lateral patellar dislocation include excess femoral internal rotation, excess external rotation of the tibia, lateral femoral condyle hypoplasia, insufficiency of the VMO, an increased Q angle, a tight lateral retinaculum, patella alta, patella tilt, generalized ligamentous laxity, and patellofemoral dysplasia. The common theme throughout this list of predisposing features is an inequality in forces acting medially and laterally on the patella with resultant higher rates of lateral patellar dislocation. So since we're looking for a false statement for this question, the correct answer is five, insufficiency of the vastus lateralis as this is not a predisposing factor for lateral patellar dislocation in a native knee. And the final question, a high school softball player has chronic activity-related anterior knee pain without a history of instability. Which radiographic measurement is used to indicate when a lateral retinacular release may be helpful? And the choices are 1, the congruence angle, 2, the Q angle, 3, a sulcus angle, 4, lateral patellofemoral angle, and 5, patellar height index. So the lateral patellofemoral angle is the angle formed by the lateral patellar facet and a line drawn across most prominent aspects of the anterior portion of the trochlea on a CT scan or a sunrise view radiograph. If there is a negative patellar tilt on this measurement, the patient may benefit from a lateral release for pain relief. Lateral release is not used for instability. The sulcus angle refers to the depth of the trochlea, the congruence angle measures the relationship of the center of the patella to the center of the trochlea, and these are used to assess malalignment and instability. So the correct answer to this question is 4, lateral patellofemoral angle. That's all for this review on patellar instability. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. See you all tomorrow.